أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين ثم الصلاة والسلام على خاتم الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ونبينا محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين السلام عليكم dear brothers and sisters ورحمة الله وبركاته I'd like to welcome you all to another episode of the life of Prophet Muhammad We've been speaking about the verse of purification. And the reason why we've spent uh, some time reflecting on this verse is because a few episodes ago we spoke about the wives of the Prophet and the, uh, the relationship the Prophet had with them, the stories behind how uh, he initiated those marriages. And because the majority of Muslims are of the opinion that they are uh, referred to in verse 33 of Surah Al-Ahzab, I thought it would be beneficial to have an in-depth discussion on uh, Ayatul Tatir. In our last, uh, last couple of episodes, we spent some time looking at the contextual clues as well as the ahadith and the historical accounts that support the interpretation that Ahlul Bayt refers only to the Holy Five as, uh, as, the, Shia's, uh, as the Shia's maintain. Now, in order, you know, for the sake of fairness, I think we need to spend a little bit of time looking at uh, some of the main contentions that have been put forward by Sunni Scholars, you know, it's important that we don't fall into uh, the uh, the straw man fallacy. We don't want to straw man uh, other Muslims. So I think it would be useful and beneficial to look at some of their counter arguments. You know, uh, their contentions regarding the Shi'i interpretation. The first uh, contention is related to the problem of context. Sunni scholars argue that the Shi'i interpretation doesn't fit with the context of the verse. They say that if you look at the verses before and after the verse of purification, the audience, the addressees, are, are clearly the wives of the Prophet. So why would there be this sudden, this abrupt shift where you have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addressing the Ahlul Bayt, Ali, Muhammad, Fatima, Hassan, and Hussein, you know, smack in the middle of, uh, of this context. And they also argue that this, is, this goes against the, the dictates of Quranic eloquence. The Quran is a book of fasaha, it's a book of balagha, and it is not eloquent, and it is not... Uh, it is not in line with the, the beauty, the literary beauty of the Qur'an for it to uh, exhibit and display these sudden and abrupt uh, uh, shifts, this disruption of, uh, of context. Now, our response to this contention is that yes, the apparent context within the verses of the Qur'an is by default a strong indicator 
of the unity of meaning. Meaning, generally speaking, you can rely on the context to understand that you know what was discussed in the early part of the verse is related to the middle and it's related to the end. That is a general rule of thumb. However, Shi'i scholars argue that in order, in order for you to, to argue that the section that where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about Ahlul Bayt, the way that you can argue that this does not go along with the context, they say that when two conditions are met, the apparent context, the apparent flow of the verses should not play a role in understanding the verse. Now what do we mean by this? When the style of the verse changes suddenly and there is no apparent link between the portion of the verses that come before and after, this is one condition where when it's very clear that the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse have nothing to do with the middle, you cannot make the argument that what is in the middle is automatically related to what is in the beginning or what is in the end. And this can be demonstrated by removing the portion of the verse in the middle and seeing if it renders any difference in terms of the meaning. So when you look at the verse of purification, if you remove the sentence, إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهِ If you omit, if you just delete that part of the verse, what you'll find is that there will be no change in the meaning of the, uh, the passage. Meaning, there's no change in the meaning and the message of the passage. The, 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 there's still a complete idea there. This means that what was in the middle, you can't say that the middle has to be related to the, uh, the earlier part of the verse and the verses that come after. Because clearly, if you, if you delete it, if you omit it, the passage still makes complete sense. So we'll, we'll give an example of this, just so we can illustrate to our listeners what we mean by this. Another example of this, this phenomenon of drastic change in verse style, we see in the verse known as the Ayah of Ikmaluddin. The verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala discusses the completion of religion. You know, if you look at that verse, it's actually a small section of a longer verse. And that part of the ayah, you know, and then where Allah says, it's in the middle of a discussion about the rules of meat. So Allah begins by saying, you know, forbidden to you is the carrion of blood, the flesh of swine, that which that over which any name other than God has been invoked, and then it speaks in detail about the rules of, of meat. And then in the middle, today, those who are bent on denying the truth have lost all hope of you ever forsaking your religion. Do not then hold them in awe, but stand in awe of me. Today I have perfected your religion 
for you and have bestowed upon you the full measure of my blessings and willed that self-surrender unto me shall be your religion, that Islam shall be your religion. And then it goes back to the discussion on meat. So if you delete the part of the ayah that I've, I've boldened, you see that it would still remain as a complete idea. So therefore, understanding the middle segment within the verse should not be dictated by its context. So you shouldn't say that all has to be related to meat. Because the verse, because the early the, the beginning of the verse speaks about meat, and the end of the verse also is related to, to, uh, to consumption. And therefore, we have to understand the middle part of the verse in the context of meat consumption. The argument here is, no, you don't. Because if you remove that part of the verse, it doesn't affect the meaning. The, the, the verse is still complete. So, this is, this is one condition that if it's met, it doesn't matter what was said before or after. You have to examine the verse almost in isolation. The second condition that has to be met in order for us to not give too much weight, not give weight to the apparent uh, context, is that when we have clear ahadith, we have riwayat about sababun nuzul, that that portion of the ayah had an independent cause for revelation. You know, sometimes verses of the Quran are not revealed completely. So you might have a part of a verse that's revealed, and then there's a totally an independent occasion for the revelation of the rest of the ayah. So when there are clear narrations about the cause of, revel- of revelation that reveal the portion of the verse was revealed in isolation and not together with the other portions of the verse, then we should not give weight to the flow of the ayat. We shouldn't argue that this part of the verse has to be understood in line with what was mentioned earlier or what was mentioned after. And when it comes to ayatul tathir, one can't say that innama yuridullah liyudhiba ankum ritsa has to be about the has to be about the wives because the beginning of the verse was speaking about the wives. We say what? We say that this portion of the ayah had a specific cause of revelation that was independent of the, the beginning of the verse. So the narrations indicate that ayatul tathir that innama yuridullah liyudhiba ankum ritsa ahl al-bayt was revealed, was specifically revealed for the Holy Five without being linked to the rest of the verse. In fact, there are further narrations that indicate that the entire passage in Surah Al-Ahzab, verses 29 to 33, where the wives are being censored and they're being admonished, it had a completely separate occasion of revelation. And you could you know, consult Tafsir Al-Tabari and find that those verses that were revealed where Allah admonishes the wives, they had, they had a separate occasion of revelation and innama yuridullah liyudhiba ankum ritsa ahl al-bayt 
also had uh, an independent uh, cause for revelation. Now, it's important to note here that this does not imply that the Qur'an is haphazard, that the Qur'an has been arranged in a way that is disharmonious, or that the, the structure of the ayah contradicts the dictates of wisdom. As we mentioned previously, there is wisdom. See, we have to make a distinction between the wisdom of placing the ayah in the, the, that portion of the verse in this ayah and arguing that this portion must be connected and must be understood in the context of what was mentioned earlier and before. That it has to be related topically to what was mentioned earlier and what was mentioned after. We say that, no, that's not the case. Whenever you come across a, a, a portion of an ayah where you can delete it and it doesn't affect the meaning, then you can be sure that you don't need to understand that verse, that portion of the verse, and, and assume that it has to be related to the topic that was mentioned earlier or after. But this doesn't negate the fact that there is wisdom in why it was placed there. So the placement of إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهِ the, the reason why, the wisdom behind why it is nestled between instructions that are directed towards the wives of the Prophet is that this achieves a very important uh, objective and that is to ac accentuate the degree of purity that the Ahlul Bayt have attained while, while highlighting the stark contrast that disqualifies the wives of the Prophet from inclusion into that group. So to demonstrate that, uh, that contrast is, uh, is important. Secondly, one of the wisdoms in placing it, again, إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهِ being placed in the middle of verses that address the wives, it doesn't go against the wisdom. In fact, it's still in line with the general theme of Surah Al-Ahzab, which is to protect the dignity of the Prophet, to protect him from the rebuke of the hypocrites who seek to malign him. So it's all about protecting the honor and the dignity of Rasulullah Now, what is the wisdom? There are many... Uh, uh, theories that have been put forward about regarding the the reason behind the wisdom behind the placement of Ayatul Tatir of Innama Yuridullah in the middle of a discussion about the wives of the Prophet. One of the uh, the statements that I want to share with you is from uh, Sheikh Jafar al Subhani, who is one of the leading uh, Maraji' one of the leading jurists of Qum. Alhamdulillah, he's still alive. May Allah lengthen his life and the life of all of our maraja and have mercy upon all of those who have departed. He has a very uh, beautiful excerpt here. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is from uh, his uh, topical tafsir of the Qur'an, uh, Mafahimul Qur'an. 
the uh, Quranic concepts. So when he when he reaches the discussion on Ayatul Tathir, he explains the wisdom behind its placement as follows. He says that history tells us across the span of its many pages about the stance of the Quraysh and others in reference to the Ahlul Bayt. Their kettle of jealousy did not cease to boil and the negative views the Quraysh had about them are as clear as the sun on a blazing day. Therefore, the divine wisdom dictated that this verse should be placed amidst verses talking about the wives of the Prophet in order to mitigate the sensitivity that others had about the Ahlul Bayt. However, the truth remains clear to one who look at it with a discerning eye, that the verse is meant for a different group than the wives of the Prophet, as we have just elucidated. So, Shaykh Ja'far al-Subhani basically is arguing that the wisdom is that it was actually hidden and nestled in between those instructions for the wives to make it subtle, to make it too subtle to be detected by munafiqeen, but to be clear for those who are seeking the truth. Because if the praise of Ahlul Bayt was too obvious and too explicit, this would have led to the distortion of the Qur'an. And one of the ways in which Allah preserved the Qur'an was to position these verses where the Ahlul Bayt are being lauded and praised, to position them in a way where it's not too obvious, but it's just obvious enough if you're looking for it. And then the final point that we want to mention uh, with respect to the, uh, the first contention is that that this goes against the eloquence of the Qur'an, the, the changing, uh, changing the, uh, the, uh, the pronouns, changing the subject abruptly, goes against the eloquence of the Qur'an. For those who have studied Ilmul Balagha, you actually know that there is a particular rhetorical style known in the science of Balagha as digression, istitrad. And in fact, istitrad is employed throughout the Qur'an. There are many places where you see pronouns are suddenly changed and the addressees are suddenly changed. There's a switch in who God is speaking to, a sudden change in who God is speaking to. So one example of this is Surah Al-Fatih. Verse 8, Surah 48, verse 8. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Indeed, we have sent you, O Prophet, as a witness, a bringer of good news, and a warner. So here, in the beginning of the ayah, who is God speaking to? He's speaking to the Prophet. And then suddenly, 
لتؤمنوا بالله ورسوله وتعزروه وتوقروه وتسبحوه بكرة وأصيلا In order that you, O believers, then Allah suddenly switches and starts addressing the believers. In order that you believers believe in God, His Messenger, and support Him and respect Him and glorify God by morning and by evening. So in this single verse, Allah begins by addressing the Prophet and then there's istitrad, there's a digression where the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shifts from addressing the Prophet to addressing the Mu'mineen in the same verse. So what is the problem if Allah is addressing the wives and then He shifts, He addresses Ahlul Bayt and then He goes back to addressing the wives? There's a Qur'anic precedent for this. So istitrad is common in the Qur'an and this is just uh, one example of this. So the first argument, the first contention by some Sunni ulama that that the Shi'i interpretation goes against the context, we mentioned that, yes, context is important, but when you are looking at a portion of the verse that can be deleted and it doesn't affect the overall, the meaning of the verse, it's very clear that what was omitted, what is deleted, the the, the portion of discussion, does not necessarily, does not need to be understood and connected to what was mentioned earlier or what is mentioned after. Because if it was connected, removing and omitting that section would disrupt the flow of the verse. So therefore, it's clear that there is a shift in uh, who, what God is speaking about, who God is addressing. And then, of course, we mentioned the issue of the the narrations that clearly mention that this specific portion of the ayah had had an independent occasion of revelation. So when you have that, that is going to supersede the argument that we have to go by the apparent context. So that was the first contention. The second contention is that some Sunni scholars argue that the verse, Ayatul Tathir, subsumes all of Bani Hashim. Why are you restricting it to five individuals? And this argument uh, is basically based on the interpretation of the word Al-Bayt. Ahlul Bayt. إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهِ لِيُذْهِبَ عَنْكُمُ الرِّجْسَ أَهْلَ الْبَيْتِ وَيُطَهِرَكُمْ تَعْطِيرًا So what is the meaning of Al-Bayt? The people of the house. Those who subscribe to this view, the Ayatul Tathir refers to all of Bani Hashim, they say the word Bayt here means Kaaba. Meaning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is addressing, addressing the people of the Kaaba, meaning the caretakers of the Kaaba, the custodians of the Kaaba. And the custodians of the Kaaba are who? Are the Bani Hashim. They were the ones who had this honor. And therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about them. Now of course, there are many problems with this, uh, this interpretation. Now, this interpretation is, is supported by, it's really based heavily on the view of Zayd ibn Arqam. And we mentioned him in our earlier sessions. Now, 
the narration of Zayd ibn Arqam, which is found in, uh, in Sunni hadith references, needs to be contextualized properly. Meaning that the narrations from Zayd ibn Arqam, where he says that uh, the, the meaning of Ahlul Bayt, where he explains the meaning of, uh, of the itra of the Prophet, he was speaking about Hadith al-Thaqalayn. He wasn't explaining the meaning of Ahlul Bayt in Ayatul Tathir. He was asked about Hadith al-Thaqalayn and the meaning of Wa'itrati Ahl Bayti. So therefore, it doesn't necessarily follow that his wider definition of the term Ahlul Bayt applies equally to the specific use of Ahlul Bayt in Ayatul Tathir. So that, that is one response that some Shi'i scholars have given. But I think an even stronger response is that this is the ijtihad of Zayd ibn Arqam. He's not relaying to you what the Prophet said. He's relaying to you his understanding of what the Prophet meant when he said, وَعِتْرَةِ أَهْلَ بَيْتِي in Hadith al-Thaqalayn. And what's even more uh, problematic about this is that when you look at, if you include all of Bani Hashim in this, you have, this means that Abbas, Aqil, Ja'far are all part of Ahlul Bayt. The Prophet ﷺ in Hadithul Kisa, and we mentioned that Hadithul Kisa was, was, uh, happened on more than one occasion where the Prophet uses a cloak to identify who the Ahlul Bayt are. If Banu Hashim are part of Ahlul Bayt, how come we don't see any instance where Abbas, Aqil, or Ja'far are under him in the cloak? So we have clear nusus, we have clear textual proofs that Ahlul Bayt refer to the Ashabul Kisa because after the Prophet puts, drapes the cloak over them. He says, these are my Ahlul Bayt. And it happened on many occasions. How come it never happened once uh, with the other members of Bani Hashim? And also when we spoke about how the Prophet stood at the door of Ali and Fatima for many months, calling them to the prayer. He didn't stand at the door of, of Abbas, of, of Aqil, of, of Ja'far. He didn't stand at their doors. So we have clear textual proofs uh, regarding who, uh, who that is. So these textual proofs are the words of the Prophet. So how can we elevate the ijtihad of Zayd ibn Arqam above the clear textual proofs that are from the Prophet where he is telling us who the Ahlul Bayt is. So that's number two. So the contention that Ahlul Bayt subsumes the the uh, the Banu, all of the Banu Hashim is problematic because within Banu Hashim you also have people like Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab also was a caretaker of uh, of the uh, of the Kaaba. Now, third contention, and we'll have to do half of them in, in this episode and the other half in our next episode uh, because some of them are are a bit nuanced and uh, require detail. So we'll cover uh, a couple of more and then uh, one more and inshallah we'll uh, leave the rest for our next uh, episode. Another contention is that 
Okay, let's assume that the verse is about Muhammad, Fatima, Hassan, and Hussein. Let's assume that the Shi'is are right. The Shia are right and it. Ahlul Bayt refers to them. They'll say it does, still doesn't establish their infallibility. They say that this verse has nothing to do with Isma. Now, the reason why they put forward this counter-argument is that they bring examples of verses in the Qur'an where Allah speaks about purification and those verses are related to the believers in general or they're related to the Sahaba. So for example, in Surah Al-Ma'idah verse 6, Allah says, مَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ لِيَجْعَلَ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنْ حَرَجٍ Allah does not want to impose any hardship on you. Allah is speaking to the believers. Allah doesn't want to impose any hardship upon you, but wants to make you pure and to bestow upon you the full measure of His blessing so that you may have cause to be grateful. So they say, look, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying to regular, ordinary mu'mineen that I want to make you pure. What's so special about Ayatul Tathir? Another verse, Surah uh, Al-Anfal, verse 11. وَيُنَزِّلُ عَلَيْكُمْ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ مَاءً لِيُطَهِّرَكُمْ بِهِ وَيُذْهِبَ عَنْكُمْ رِجْسَ الشَّيْطَانِ وَلِيَرْبِطَ عَلَىٰ قُلُوبِكُمْ وَيُثَبِّتَ بِهِ الْأَقْدَامِ Allah says, remember how it was when He caused inner calm to enfold you, that tranquility that descended upon you, as an assurance from Him, and sent down upon you water from the skies so that you might purify, so that He might purify you, thereby and free you from Satan's unclean whisperings, meaning to free you of the rigs of shaitan. So purity is mentioned here, and removing and warding off rigs is also mentioned here. إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهِ لِيُذْهِبَ عَنْكُمُ الرِّجْسَ أَهْلَ الْبَيْتِ وَيُطَهِرَكُمْ تَطْهِيرًا Allah is saying the same thing about Sahaba. That He wants to purify them and He wants to ward them of rijs. So that doesn't, no one believes that the Sahaba are infallible. No one, no one claims that the believers are infallible because Allah wishes to purify them. So how does it establish the infallibility of the Holy Five that are mentioned? So, they say that the Qur'an speaks, so basically the argument is that the Qur'an speaks about purification in the case of the Sahaba, and it's understood in in an ordinary matter. So why should we treat Ayatul Tathir with some special, as a special distinction? That it's, it's ordinary, just like, it's an ordinary purification, just like Allah wishes ordinary purification for all believers. So, they argue, based on this, based on these verses, they say that when you look at Ayatul Tathir, 
They say that the verse uses the mudari' form, yuridu. إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهِ لِيُذْهِبَ عَنْكُمْ And yuridu refers to the present and future. And therefore it means that Allah protected them from sin in a time-limited way. Meaning for a certain period of time they had some protection from sin. In the same way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala strengthens the believers, He strengthens their heart, and they're protected from sin for you know, in a time-limited way, based on however Allah decides, when Allah wants to give them that protection. But it's not a blanket infallibility. This is one argument that they've used. Other scholars like Al-Alusi, he says that the verse is conditional. Basically, he says it's it's shartiya. So he says, when you look at he says, no, Alusi says, Allah is talking to the wives of the Prophet. And he's basically saying that God only prescribed these ordinance, these ordinances so that if you follow them, God will remove all filth from you and completely purify you. So, so this irada is basically meaning that if you follow what I said, if you stay in your homes and you don't display your adornments and so on and so forth, if you follow the commandments of God, God will remove all filth from you and completely purify you. And then other scholars say that if you say that it means infallibility, that Ahlul Bayt are infallible, purification from sins must by necessity, imply exposure to sins first. And therefore, otherwise, its purification becomes meaningless. So if you want to say that it means that they're, they're, they're pure, you have to admit that they are, they're sullied with sin. Otherwise, if they're already pure, what is Allah purifying? meaning that what it, what you're aiming is has already been achieved. So what is the response of Shi'i scholars to these uh, these con- this contention? They say that as for the usage of purification in Surah Al-Ma'idah and in Surah Al-Anfal, these the verses in question are specifically addressed in reference to the rules of ritual ablution and rain befalling, befalling the companions after the battle of Badr to remove their external filth. There is nothing in that ayah that would suggest purification from moral and spiritual vices. So the, the ayah is speaking about a physical ritual type of purification whereas in ayatul tathir the verses surrounding ayatul tathir are speaking about ethical obligations that that behoove the wives of the prophet even further my dear brothers and sisters the various statements made by the holy five 
and the Imams of Ahlul Bayt indicate that this verse was taken as a merit that affirmed their infallibility. And this is why Amir al-Mu'mineen in the Shura, in Hadith al-Munashada, he mentions Ayatul Tatir. If it was something ordinary, just like ordinary purification, why would Ali mention it in that council of six men? as a merit for himself to be the Khalifa. So even the Sahaba of the Prophet themselves understood that this purification in Ayatul Tatheer was distinct and unique and it was not like that general purification. Also the word Irada here implies purification. If you say that purification in Ayatul Tathir, as some Sunnis have said to me, is that it's only a temporary purification. If that's the case, then what distinction did the Ahlul Bayt have in being purified for a temporary period of time? Every, every human being experiences periods where they're pure from sin. When we were children, you know, maybe if we have periods where we feel very religious and we do tawbah and we don't... So we all experience periods of purity. So if this, if ayatul tathir, innama yuridullah, is only a temporary purity because of the present tense verb yuridu, then this doesn't give them any distinction over others. But as we said, the fact that it was used by the Imams themselves, highlights that it was not an ordinary purification. It was not a temporary purification because every human being experiences temporary purification. And there's another point here that Allama Tabatabai makes with respect to those who argue that the, 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 there's a conditional tone in Ayatul Tathir. Meaning that God is saying to the wives of the Prophet, if you follow all of, those, all of those instructions that I gave you, I will purify you. Alama Tabatabai, he says that, th- then what is, the, what is the merit of Ahlul Bayt? Any, if any Muslim follows the commands of God, they will be purified. So the, the conditional nature of this verse is untenable. Because of the points we already discussed, and as Allama Tabatabai states in his tafsir, if the meaning of the ayah is simply, O Ahlul Bayt, you will be purified if you follow the commands of God as purified, as, uh, as laid out for you, then, where, then the meritorious and exclusive nature of the verse is undermined. Any Muslim who follows the commands of God would be purified. So there, was, there would be nothing special or unique about Ayatul uh, Tathir. Also, the verse of purification, you know, for those who say that that Ayatul Tathir, if you say that it means infallibility, you're going to have to admit that they were touched by filth, the filth of sin, and therefore God has to purify them. Now, the answer to this is that Ayatul Tathir, by the admission of nearly all Mufassireen of the Qur'an, 
They say that it includes the Prophet. So in this context, stating that the verse of, of purity, of that ayatul tathir, implies purity only after being touched by filth, this would imply that the Prophet ﷺ committed sins and this would negate his infallibility and all Muslims believe in the infallibility of the Prophet. And even if someone were to, even if someone were to dare question the infallibility of the Prophet, how about Hassan and Hussein? They were children. They were not even baligh yet. So they're pure. No one can say that they're, they, the filth of sin has, has touched them. They're not even mukallaf yet. So, when you look at verses, and this is also another, another uh, important point. If you follow this type of reasoning, that purification can only happen after something has been exposed to filth. This type of reasoning, although seemingly logical it sounds it sounds convincing it falls it falls flat on its face when you examine other verses of the quran so for example allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in surah 98 verse 2 rasulun min allah yatlu suhufan mutahharan surah al-bayyinah a messenger from god reciting purified pages Reciting revelation. Does this mean that revelation was filth, God forbid, and God had to purify it? No. Just because Allah says something is purified, it doesn't mean that it was dirty or is filthy or was sullied. Because here Allah is referring to revelation itself. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about Yusuf, Surah 12, verse 24, كَذَٰلِكَ لِنَصْرِفَ عَنْهُ السُّوءَ وَالْفَحْشَاءِ By that, it was, by that, it was that we repelled from him all evil and debauchery. We repelled all evil from him. Does this mean that God forbid Yusuf made himself filthy with sin. We all know that he didn't commit any sin. He didn't commit that act of indecency. So here is an example of Allah speaking about repelling evil from him. And that doesn't mean that he, he that doesn't mean that there was any impurity in him to begin with. And then finally, what do you say if you argue that? that the verse does not mean infallibility of Ahlul Bayt because if you say that it means infallibility, that purification implies filth to sin and then purification, then what do you say about Allah's statement about the spouses in Jannah? Surah Al-Baqarah verse 25. وَلَهُمْ فِيهَا أَزْوَاجٌ مُطَهَّرًا and they will have their impurified wives in paradise. Does that mean that the spouses of paradise, they were filthy, Allah, Allah purified them? No. They're pure. 
So this idea that when Allah says that He thoroughly purifies something, that it implies that it is exposed to filth is not true. And it's evidenced by these verses in the Qur'an. So what is the meaning of idhabur rijs? If we go to the verse, إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ لِيُذْهِبَ عَنْكُمُ الرِّجْسَ أَهْلَ الْبَيْتِ لِيُذْهِبَ عَنْكُمُ الرِّجْسَ what, what does it mean? Purging filth, warding off filth from them. What it means is, of course there are a number of tawjihat, there are a number of meanings uh, for this that have been put forward. One, some, one opinion is that what is being negated by the verse is the very possibility, the ihtimal, or the conception, the wahm of filth ever sullying the Ahlul Bayt's sacred personalities, meaning they are protected, they're given this extra divine support from even thinking or contemplating sin. This is being negated from them. They're given this special protection. So what is being negated is the very possibility or conception of filth ever sullying their sacred personalities. This is number one. Number two is that the meaning of idhabur rids refers to them being immune from the waswasa of shaitan. Shaitan has promised to deviate all of God's, all of all people except for God's chosen servants. So, they're given this protection from the whispers of shaitan. And of course, this is not arbitrary. Number three, Ar-Rids has been defined in some narrations, as well as in, some, in Quranic usage, as doubts about religion or doubts about God. So, idhabur rijs for Ahlul Bayt means they never experience doubt about religion, meaning that the truth is always made clear to them. So, so the removal of filth and purification means the removal of doubt, any doubt from their hearts. The truth is always clear and evident to them. And then a final possible meaning, and again, all of these could be uh, true. The fourth is that rather than being a reference to the impurity itself, it's a reference to the causes and factors that serve as a preamble that serve as a pathway to impurity and God's wrath. So so they're purified from anything that may lead them, any inclination towards anything that may lead them to uh, incur God's wrath. Inshallah, in our next uh, episode, we'll examine uh, some other uh, contentions, and I think one of the most important discussions that we'll have in our next episode is that how do we include the rest of the imams of Ahlul Bayt in Ayatul Tatir? So let's say that we agree. Someone says, "Okay, I agree." 
Ahlul Bayt refers to Muhammad Ali, Fatima, Hassan, and Hussein. Okay, there, you have the Prophet and Fatima and then three Imams. H- how do you get the remaining, the remaining nine Shi'i Imams in Ahlul Bayt? Because we believe that the Ahlul Bayt are 14. So how do you add, how do you include the remaining nine Imams of Ahlul Bayt in Ayatul Tatheer? They weren't born yet. So how do Shi'i scholars argue for the inclusion of the nine Imams? Inshallah, we'll speak about that in detail in our next episode. And Inshallah, we'll also speak about the the different usages of uh, Ahlul Bayt in the Qur'an and how we can use those verses to gain a better understanding of Ayatul Tatheer. That's the end of my discussion. Thank you so much for listening, brothers and sisters. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.